0: This past October I mentioned only one time in the church about two months ago that um, we were going to be uh, doing something in our church called an orphan experience which would culminate in a trip to Haiti uh, to work with orphans and the response to that only mentioned it once the response was overwhelming and the trip has filled up just like that and if if there's ever a spot that opens up we'll let you know but the response is overwhelming however We want the rest of you to be able to participate in the orphan experience, even though you can't go on the trip with the rest of those who are going to Haiti. Uh, We're going to be having, starting in mid-January, a a, a six-week study uh, on uh, God's heart for the orphan and how we can participate with his heart for the orphan. And even though you may not be going to Haiti, you can still participate in that experience. But we need to know soon, within the next few days, If you would RSVP to David Chakazian, his email is in the bulletin because, uh, you know, once that deadline passes there as well because we're going to buy some material and we want to make sure we have enough room for that study. So if you want to be a part of the orphan experience, uh, that's going to be in the mid-January. Please RSVP before, email David Chakazian before in the next few days. Please turn to Matthew 22. We've been going through the book of Matthew for basically a year now. I think I started it a year today. Uh, And as we've been going through Matthew, we have seen throughout that there has been conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus often went after them in parables or stories. And what he would do, he would expose their hearts and he would warn them about impending judgment. And so today we're going to continue in this this same confrontational parable style, and we're going to look at another parable. It's in Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. So let's all stand as I read this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, "Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment?" And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, "Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated. The religious leaders here thought that they were the ones who were chosen. They thought that they were God's elect people. There was this image from the Old Testament of a fruitful vine that was used to describe God's people. And these religious leaders thought that they were the ones who were fruitful, that that did good works, that honored God, that, that kept his will. And that was the standard bearer for all who were to follow God. They thought they were the chosen and fruitful ones of Israel. And yet Jesus would continually go after them and call them out and tell them they were going to face judgment. He he, he said, you are the ones who are going to hell. And they would say back to him, no, no, you're the one who's who's in cahoots with Satan. You're the one who's going to hell. And who do you think was right? Of course, Jesus was right. These religious leaders were living in something that today I'm going to call... A distorted reality. They believed they were fruitful, God's chosen people, and they were deceiving themselves and living in a distorted reality. Over Thanksgiving, I had the opportunity to uh, read a book, finish a book. It was the biography of Steve Jobs. Many of you know who's the founder of Apple computers, and you have his iPhone, and maybe you have your iPad, and Mac computer. Well, he was—he was the founder, and uh, Walter Isaacson wrote this biography. And throughout the whole book, he carried this theme through, called this reality distortion field. He said that Steve Jobs operated in a reality distortion field. And, and that's, a, that's a terminology that, that some of his friends gave him that, that came off the idea of a Star Trek episode where th- these aliens thought through sheer mental capabilities they could create reality on a certain planet. And that's what Steve thought Jobs thought he could do. He thought he could distort reality no matter what was facing him. He could bend reality to make it work in his favor, no matter what the terms are telling him in the real world. And of course, you know, this, this served him well in many ways because he would get people to meet deadlines and create products that they never thought they could do unless they were caught up in his reality distortion field. And we're impressed by those products. But his reality distortion field also was very, very um, bad for him. I mean, for example, he in the 80s, I don't know, but he was, pushed out of, he was pushed out of Apple computer and he was pretty much fired and he was avoiding reality and he was kept trying to regain power over and over again. He was trying to bend reality in his favor. One time in his life when he was young, he had a a little girl out of wedlock and he didn't want to acknowledge that he actually fathered a child. So he would try to bend reality, distort reality as if somehow if he ignored her, he could make her go away. And as many of you know, he finally got cancer later in life. And then when he was first diagnosed, all of his doctors, all of his friends, all of his family said, you need to have surgery. And he said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna work this out some other way. I'm going to make the cancer go away some other way without surgery. And the doctor's saying, you've got to have surgery. You've got to have surgery. And he put surgery off month after month after month. And he finally decided, okay, I'm going to have surgery. So he had the surgery. And according to the book, not for sure, but it was probably too late. The cancer had already spread. And as you may know, Steve Jobs died this past October. His good friend, Art Levinson, made a very curious quote, and I want to show it to you. This is what Art Levinson said. He says, I think Steve has such a strong desire for the world to be a certain way that he wills it to be that way. Sometimes it doesn't work. Reality is unforgiving. All of us are guilty of distorting reality in one way or another. And reality can be unforgiving. Sometimes the consequences are small and sometimes the consequences are great. You can, you can maybe make a bad grade on a test because you didn't study and you thought, I'm going to pull it off, and you didn't. And sometimes the, the consequences are even greater. Perhaps you've, you've spent years ignoring your marriage. And as each year goes by, it becomes more and more of disaster. Or you spend years ignoring issues in your life that you need to deal with. And each year that goes by, it just gets worse. Because reality can be unforgiving. And some of the consequences are even eternal like ignoring the invitation of God, the King, to receive salvation in His Son, Jesus. You keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And in the end, you will face the King's wrath. So today, what I want us to do, if we could be just honest with what's going on, is that we would stop distorting reality in our lives. There's got to be certain areas of your life That you've been ignoring, that you've been putting off character issues, integrity issues, sin issues, that today is a day to come into the light and walk in truth and realize, yes, reality may be unforgiving, but God is very forgiving to repentant sinners. Jesus is trying to get these leaders to face up to what they're doing, to come into reality, to follow him as messiah. And he's given them parable over and over and over again. And here we go again. Let's look at the specifics of how Jesus is trying to get their attention. And this story that he tells about this gracious invitation of the king, which is basically saying, receive the Messiah, Jesus. Start in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, now try to understand this. Jesus is trying to show you how the kingdom works. This is how the reign of God in Christ works. This is what it looks like. And specifically, he says it's, it's compared to a wedding feast, And in this wedding feast during this time, when you would have these wedding feasts, they would normally last several days, invitations would have already been sent out. And what simply needed to happen is when the food was all ready, those who had already RSVP'd, the servants would go to those who RSVP'd, and they would come to the wedding. So the king goes out to people that have already said they are coming, and those who have already said they are coming decide not to come. This is not good. Imagine the royal wedding this past May that maybe some of you woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning to watch between William and Kate in England, okay? You, are you tracking with me at all here? All right. So this wedding happened, and all these celebrities and politicians and elite people were invited. But can you imagine that at the time of all the festivities, no one shows up. No David Beckham. No prime minister, they just don't show up at all. Do, do you feel how like, like rude and an affront? And they're like, are you kidding me? You, you're not gonna show up? That's what we got going on here. And it's more than just being rude. And maybe it, it considered being treason. What, you're not gonna come? What are you, are you, are you starting another government over here to overthrow mine? You're not coming to the festivities of my son? Keep going. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Okay, here we go. We have the second call after the initial invitation. The king goes back to these invited gifts. He's pursuing them. And get this, he's trying to entice them to come. He's like, I got some good food. I got these these big old fat calves. They've been slaughtered. The oxen are all ready. It is a feast. So he's trying to entice them to come. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be a grand old time. You come to church, hopefully on Sundays, because you want to know about the character of God you want the Bible to tell you what God is like because you want to know what he's like. Here is a beautiful picture of God. He is this persistent, gracious king. Throughout the history of Israel, God would pursue them in love. He would send a prophet to them. And he would send a prophet to them again and again and again and again because he loved them. And he would try to entice them with forgiveness and his righteousness and grace and mercy and joy. He's trying to lure his people in. And and, and that's the same way that God still acts and functions in our world today. Some have even called God the hound of heaven. He's like a hound dog. He's on your track. He's going to chase you down. He's going to try to lure you in. And the way he lures you in is by showing you his love and his mercy and grace. He's trying to come after you. Some of you know this right now because God's coming after you. He's coming after you right now. He's saying the life that you've been living is just the pit of sin and death and destruction. He's trying to show you there is freedom, there is forgiveness in Christ, righteousness and grace abounding. So God is coming after you. He's the hound of heaven in your life. It's his character consistently pursues people and love. So are you going to come to the gospel feast? Are you going to come to the feast of forgiveness in his son Jesus? Or are you going to spurn the invitation That he's offering. Watch what these people do. Verse 5. But they paid no attention. And went off. One to his farm. Another to his business. While the rest seized his servants. Treated them shamefully. And killed them. So yet one group is kind of passively uninterested. They're going to their, about their business of their day. They're just taking care of life. And this other group is kind of aggressively violent against the servants. And, and you, 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 let me tell you what the two groups have in common. The groups that were violently aggressive against his servants and the ones who were passively interested, uninterested, the thing they have in common is they both rejected the invitation. Most people that you know in the Chicago area are not aggressively violent against Jesus Your friends that you know who right now are not following Christ They're not aggressively against Christ. Those of you in here who who are not following Christ. You're not aggressively against Christ. You're just probably passively uninterested I mean you got other things to do you got a job you got a family you got life You're just doing your thing and you're just you really don't see a need for Jesus but according to Jesus, you are rejecting him just as much as those who are aggressively violent against him. And so what does Jesus do? He aggressively pursues in love. Progressively. He just keeps com- com- consistently coming after you in love. But eventually, there'll come a time where that will be over. Look what the king does. Verse 7. The king was angry, and he he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. (laughs) It's like, what kind of wedding feast is this, (laughs) that you put it on hold to go to war? Are you starting to see how the parable is kind of bleeding over into reality? He's kind of explaining what it's going to be like in reality, And, and throughout the the, the, the history of Israel, what happened when they would reject God? Remember? God was in judgment. He would often destroy their, their kings and their, their people and take them off into to exile. And here's going to be no different. In, in fact, uh, not many years from now, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was going to be sacked by the Romans. They were going to face this, this temporary judgment and that's what is going to happen to those who continue to walk in this path of distorted reality. I, I'm just so amazed by these guys, these religious leaders, because their their forefathers, their ancestors, consistently killed the prophets. And they thought, well, we're not like them. And what are they going to do? They're going to make sure that Jesus is killed. They think they're the chosen ones. They think they are the fruitful ones. They are so deceived. They they have just taken reality and just kind of warped it completely on their way to destruction. And and it made me think, surely there are people in here right now who God is pursuing, but right now you may claim to be a Christian. Uh, probably, Probably every single one in here, except maybe a few, would make that claim. You would claim to be a Christian, and yet you're really not following jesus you you have totally kind of warped and distorted what's going on in your own life you view yourself as one that can just culturally exist as a christian and that's somehow going to translate into a relationship with god but there's nothing that has happened in your heart there's been no change in your heart. You don't, you're not really desiring to follow Jesus and to obey him. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about just a, an inkling of having desire to love him and, 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 and follow him. It's like you make the profession, but there's nothing going on inside. It's a distortion of reality. And what does God do? He keeps coming after you. But eventually, there's going to come a time where God will replace those. Israel Israel didn't respond. What happened? They got replaced. You know why? God's going to make sure that his son is honored. He's the king, and he's going to make sure that his son is honored. And if you are deciding you're not going to be the one who bring him praise and glory for his salvation, God will simply replace you. He will have worshipers of his son. Look what happens. Look at the replacement. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And then those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Israel's leadership was not worthy of the feast because they rejected the Messiah. But God still has this feast ready. And so in this picture, they go out, bring in the bad. That means the, the, the corrupt of society. And even the good who are viewed good in the eyes of society. Just bring them all in because God is going to pack his wedding hall because the son will be honored. Like what, what's going on here? Well, obviously, it's a picture of God going to the Gentiles, uh, going to the Gentiles who are just in chapter 21, who are even prostitutes, uh, tax collectors, Jews and Gentiles. He's going to pack out the wedding hall so that his son will be honored. And one of the things that's really cool about being a Christian, we are to go out and when we go out, we proclaim the gospel to everybody. We just tell everybody about Jesus. And even the people you think may respond, sometimes don't. And the ones you think might not respond, do. Because you would think the religious leaders of all people who knew the word of God better than you and I know it, didn't respond. And you think they would. And then Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes who don't know the word at all, you would think there's no way they're going to respond. And they do. So let's not put like these, these barriers of uh, who we're going to share Christ with and not share Christ with. We need to share Christ with everybody. Even those we think would never respond like some 19-year-old punk who's now preaching to you. There's no way. There's no way people thought this guy would respond. We need to proclaim the gospel because God's going to make sure that his son is honored. He's going to pack his wedding hall. So the king comes in. He sees his wedding hall is packed. And then we have this very interesting situation that I'm sure a lot of you are wondering about. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) What kind of wedding feast is this? That if you don't wear the right clothes, you get thrown into hell. Like, what in the world is going on here? Once again, the, the parable is is bleeding over into reality. The king gets there. He sees a man. He, he, he doesn't have a, a wedding garment on. And, and, and some scholars think, you know, in reviewing the culture of this time, that perhaps wedding garments were passed out at the door so all the guests would for sure be clothed in a respectful way that would honor the person having the wedding, in this case, the son. But this man, he, I don't know, maybe he thought he didn't need the garment. He was too good for the garment. He could be an exception. He doesn't have the garment on, and the king confronts him. The man is speechless, and then he goes out into eternal punishment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's sent out into hell along with the other invited guests who did not respond, the religious leaders, And you kind of want to say, Jesus, what are you getting at here? And and I don't, I, I don't think it's too hard to understand what He's getting at. I think I actually, I get this. Stick with me. Don't tune out because this is good. I think what Jesus is getting at is fruitfulness, a life of good works of honoring the Father from a a transformed heart. I think he's getting at fruitfulness. And and let me tell you why, why I think that. Look back in chapter 21. I want you to see chapter 21. I want you to look at one verse. Chapter 21. Look at verse 43. He says, therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God, he's talking to the the religious leaders here. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Remember, the religious leaders thought that they were the fruitful vine of Israel. They thought they were the chosen people of God that did his works. They had this distorted reality. And so Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to take the kingdom from you And I am going to replace you with people who will produce the kingdom's fruits or produce good works. So it seems like, unless I'm distorting the text, it seems like the wedding garment is a life of fruitfulness, of good works. Some would even say the wedding garment is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ that produces good works. I don't know how you want to say it, but there's a similar verse in the book of Revelation. Let me put this up for you. Revelation 19.8 describes the church wearing a similar garment. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let me be very clear. And I'll make sure you listen. So if you're sleeping, listen here. or You're going to be all messed up. I am saved by good works. All right, start throwing stuff at me. You are saved by good works. But it's not your good works. It's the good works of another Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly. When we put our faith in him, God's wrath is turned away, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and when the Father looks at us, he sees perfect good works, perfect righteousness. And those who are Christians have something that happens to them inside where their hearts become, the Bible says, circumcised. They become changed. They become tender. And, and what happens, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And what starts to happen is not perfectly, but we start to produce fruit, good works. We have a desire to obey the Father. We want to honor the Son, And we understand we're not saved by these good works, but if we are saved, we'll produce these good works. And you'll see the Bible talking about this consistently, even putting these two concepts together of being saved by grace and now producing good works. Let me put up one verse for you. This is from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. The the, the children in our church who go to Awana say this every week, and I think it's great. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even in Ephesians, you see this combination of grace, saved by grace through faith, and yet producing good works. But get this, you need to be careful. You need to be careful that the church today doesn't end up like the religious leaders of Israel. We need to be careful. We gotta be careful that we don't start distorting reality like the religious leaders where we think that we're being fruitful, that we're being faithful just because we say so with our words. Because if there is no fruit of a transformed life, that means that we did not respond to Jesus from the heart. Because Jesus came to save sinners. And those sinners will now produce fruit. If there is no fruit, then there is no salvation. Once again, the Bible's consistent on this message as well. Let me put up 1 John. John says something similar in 1 John 2.4. Whoever says... I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him so if you're here today and you say I know Jesus I follow Jesus and yet th- there's no indication in your life that you're obeying the commands of God that means that you didn't really believe repent trust him from your heart and you're and you according to the Bible you're a liar And then Jesus finishes off the parable. Let's look at him, finish it off with verse 14. How about this for a closer? For many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the called ones according to this parable? All right, well, the called ones are the religious leaders. They are the common people, the good and the bad. Uh, They are the man without the garment. They are all of you. They are everybody in the world who has heard the gospel. The gospel, remember, the universal call, the gospel, those who speak the gospel, if they hear it, that person could fall into the group of being called. This is this is used differently here in this parable as opposed to other portions of scripture. We'll talk about those in another time. But the call as in the sense of hearing the gospel, hearing about the reign of Christ, of God and His Messiah Jesus, the, the the called ones could be those who hear the gospel, but only a few are God's elect, chosen people. I believe in election because it seems to be pretty consistent as well in the Bible, and we can we can we can maybe disagree on basis of election and all that, but the Bible's pretty consistent on election. From God's point of view, which he's above us, right? He knows whom he has chosen. He knows who he has elected for salvation. I don't know who that is. So I don't walk up to people on the street and say, look, ma'am, before I share the gospel with you, can you tell me if you are elect or not? You don't know. You don't know who's elect, right? You don't know that. So you share the gospel with everyone. But, but how can you tell? Can you tell if someone is elect or not after they hear the gospel? Well, I, I think imperfectly, perhaps we can. Because I think we can tell God's elect by those who respond to the gospel. If someone responds to the gospel in repentance and faith, they say, I am a sinner. I need God's grace. And then you see like this transformation in their life, not perfectly, but you see this fruit starting to come out in their life. It it seems like we can say, you know, you're you're one of God's children. You've responded to the gospel. There's fruit in your life. I'm going to give you assurance of salvation from the word of God. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says to examine your life and to make sure that you're one of the elect. It really does. Let me put up a verse for you. 2 Peter 1.10. This is a good one. 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So how can you make your calling and election sure? Well, it says practice these qualities. And if you look at the context, you know what the qualities are? The qualities are simple, f- simply faith. Do you have faith in Jesus? Is that quality in your life of faith in Jesus? Another quality is goodness, knowledge and sound doctrine. Not, not, you're not preaching heresy. Uh, you have self-control. You have perseverance. You're still, by God's grace, following him. Godliness, kindness. And love. Now, I know all these traits aren't perfect in your life. They're not perfect in my life. But is there some semblance of God working in our lives? And we see these qualities. We're affirmed in the assurance of our salvation because the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we see these manifestations of this fruit in our lives. Because the Bible is very consistent. And it's very clear. It says, believers will be recognized by their fruit. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that? fruitful lives and believers we recognize by their fruit. Saved by grace through faith, now you'll produce fruit. So what, what we want to do now is as we are living these faithful lives by grace and we're followers of Jesus. None of us in here want our fruit bearing hindered because we are distorting reality. You could be distorting reality in such a way right now where you are hindering fruit in your life. Some of you are waiting until another day to deal with some of your distortions of reality. Some of you are waiting until the new year so you can make a resolution where maybe you can start following the Lord again and you want to start getting some things back Organize your life, but you're going to keep living in a certain way in sin until the new year And I just want to tell you if, if that's your mentality. I want to tell you reality can be very unforgiving There are serious consequences. I, I see people enter the holidays Spiritually weak and when the holidays are over They're just a mess So if you're one of those people in here that, that you're saying okay the new year or tomorrow, I'm going to start dealing with issues in my life. You're distorting reality. You may say, tomorrow is the time I'm going to start dealing with these purity issues. And then tomorrow comes. And you're still living in immorality. You say, well, t- well tomorrow's going to be that time where I'm going to start dealing with a certain addiction. And then tomorrow comes. And you put it off another day. Or tomorrow is going to be a time where I'm going to start giving attention to my spouse and my marriage. And then tomorrow comes and you don't do anything. Or tomorrow's a day I'm going to start raising my kids in the Lord. And then tomorrow comes and you don't do anything. You keep on pointing to tomorrow. Oh well, tomorrow's going to be the time I, I share the gospel with my, 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 my friends who don't know Jesus. And then tomorrow comes and you don't do it. We're always saying it's going to be tomorrow. I think we're just distorting reality. There's consequences to that. My wife shared a song with me uh, during this week, and it's a song called Waiting for Tomorrow by a singer named Mandisa. And I want to share some of the words from this song. I'm not going to sing it for you, thankfully, but here's some of the words. She says, maybe tomorrow I'll start over. Maybe tomorrow I'll finally change my ways. Said the same thing yesterday don't know why I'm so afraid to let you in, to let you in, to let you have all of me. When we're living lives at this distorted reality that we're going to change tomorrow, there are consequences, and I'm just telling you this, because reality can be very unforgiving. If you have issues today, deal with them today. Because here's the good news, and this is why we will not leave here depressed. We will leave here with good news. And here's the good news. Reality is very unforgiving, but God is very forgiving. If you come to him right now and say, God, today I repent. Today I want to change. Today I want forgiveness. Today I want you to just turn my heart towards you and your ways. God will move in such a way to forgive you and to change you in Christ. It's got to be today. Face, whatever you need, face today so that you can enter a new season in life that is filled with fruit. Let God's grace invade you. Hand your life over him today. Quit distorting your reality that tomorrow's going to be a better day. No, today. Collide with his grace today. Let's pray. And, Lord, we just want to hand our lives over to you right now. I just pray for the marriages in here that are not dealing with issues. I pray for the parents in here who are not dealing with issues. I pray for the, the college students in here who are not dealing with issues, Lord, that today we'll just say, you know what? We give up. We repent. We ask for grace. And there is abundant grace that's going to be poured out on us. And I just ask that you pour it out on us richly. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you're the hound who never lets us go. And you invite us to this gospel feast of forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, I ask that during these next few minutes that your children here would repent, receive grace and mercy, and enter a new season of bearing fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.